Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. First off, for all of you Owen Fitzgerald fans out there, he'll be back co-hosting with me next week. But for this week, we've got a special Money Talk segment recorded during the Finsight Series virtual event that I moderated recently, hosted by Navirum and Salesforce. In this conversation, we've got an all-star cast with Rory Galvin from Navirum, Brian Claggett from Movin, Corey Habercorn from Salesforce, and Niall Toomey from Finerga. The main theme we covered is this. The demand for digital financial services goes far beyond the domain of neobanks. How do we become truly digital upstream of consumer banking, especially in institutional banking and wealth management? The stellar crew share a lot more insights and stories as well. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. Welcome, everybody, to the first edition of the Finsight Series, Going Digital and Banking and Wealth Management, hosted by Navirum and Salesforce. I'm Pete Townsend. I'm going to be moderating this shindig this fine morning and or afternoon, wherever you may be today. I am the founding partner of Norio Ventures and an advisor to a number of fintech and digital asset businesses, mostly at the early stage level. And what we're going to do today is have this fine group of insightful individuals share their ideas with us on this one big key idea. The demand for digital financial services goes far beyond the domain of neobanks. How do we become truly digital and financial services upstream of consumer banking? And I've spoken with a number of folks about this recently in that it's just not fair, right? That all of us are have become digital animals and that we are using apps every day, even more so in the last year, our behavior has changed. Yet, when we then go to our day jobs of working in financial services, where's all of our fintech, right? Is that so much of what we work on every day is built on tech stacks from a long time ago. But we're going to look at this today from the angle of what are some of the great things happening in banking and wealth management that are strong indicators of uh, where all this is headed, how we are going digital, but how can we even accelerate that a bit more? So I'd like to intro the speakers first. I will let them intro themselves. Rory Galvin, would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, thank you, Pete. So Rory Galvin, I'm the founder and CEO of Navirum. We're a financial services consulting company, and we are a certified registered Salesforce implementation partner. We are based here in Montreal in Canada, but we operate across the United States, coast to coast in Canada. We recently started operating in Europe as well. We've been up and running now for just over two years. So delighted to uh, just be sitting here with all of you guys and just in this interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to contributing and learning something along the way as well. Awesome. Thank you, Rory. Brian? Yeah, I'm Brian Claggett. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer of Movin. Previously to that, I was a uh, reformed banker turned fintecher, I guess you'd call it. And uh, I'm broadcasting analog, as you can tell, from Williamsburg, Virginia. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. Niall Toomey. <laughs> hey guys, Niall Toomey. So uh, CTO of Fenergo, which is an Irish fintech company. Yeah, it's funny you say upstream from consumer. So we, we take care of AML, you know, anti-modeling learning, KYC, regulatory compliance for corporate, institutional, commercial, business banking, as well as retail. But that's, that's really our sweet spot is probably you know the more complex onboarding pieces and challenges around that. And just digitizing end-to-end, front-to-middle-to-back to back office is a big thing of what we're trying to do. Very good. Thank you, Niall. And the bookends of the Ori, we started with Rory, and now we'll go with Corey. Corey Habercorn. Hi, thank you. Uh, Corey Habercorn, I'm an industry advisor with Salesforce. I spent 16 plus years building custody platforms for registered investment advisors. So that, that's my background, the experience and angle I bring to Salesforce in the financial services realm, specifically in wealth and asset management. Very good. Thank you. So with that, I'd like to get to our first question, and I'm going to direct this one to Brian. So the first question is on trust and trust in financial services. We are expecting customers to engage with us digitally as financial services providers. We need the customer to trust us as financial services providers in order for us to handle all of their data, to handle all of their information, handle their money, obviously, probably most importantly. And when I say customer, I mean individuals as well as institutions all the way you know, up, up the ladder. And 
but also we as a financial services provider, we need to trust the customer, right? So there's a kind of bi-directional trust component there. Brian, what do you think are some of the contributing factors to this whole context of how customers trust institutions and institutions trust customers? I'll answer the question by posing another question that I don't expect anyone to answer, but I wanted to think about right now. You know, what the hell is trust, right? In today's age, what what is trust, right? It, you know, it, is, it, is it trust in that I trust you'll do the right thing by me? I trust you with my data. I trust you know enough about me. I think that's that's part of the equation. And depending upon your brand and the market you're going after, you know, that's that's something you have to ask of your of your organization. Generally speaking, you know, I think there's a fair amount of trust among constituents, be small business, wealth, or retail customers and their financial institution, but but they only know what they know. I, I think that, you know, with COVID-19 coming on, with the advent of this digital first mindset that's occurring, I think that trust is being redefined. I think trust is determined now increasingly by relevancy. As a brand, are you relevant? Is data being used to get closer to the customer that you know? I'll, I'll give you an example. I get messages from my bank all the time. They, they, they suggest I take trust in them. Right after I sold a large investment, which is a company called Gizio, you know, I got an email saying, hey, have I considered retirement yet? Well, if they had looked at the money coming through, I'd yeah, kind of, you know, I'm now retired. I recently got another message from my bank suggesting that I put money in a 529 for my kids. One kid is 24, the other is 22. So, you know, their 529s are done. They're spent. So where were they 18 years ago or 20 years ago when they were young, right? So, so in my mind, you know, I don't really necessarily trust my bank as as a entity that knows me. And, and knows what I want. You know, they constantly are providing irrelevant content to me that, that does nothing to really bring me closer. I view my financial institution as really a utility, not unlike, you know, a utility company. The only time I want to engage them is when they do something really stupid and they anger me. You know, that's when I engage them. Yeah, so the channel experience that I have today with my, with my bank is predominantly digital. So, as long as it's working digitally, and as long as I'm able to conduct the business I want to conduct when, how, and where, I, I guess I trust them. But for me, I don't have high expectation. Now, when I think of my relationship with Raymond James, it's a little different. And I know we'll talk about that a little later. I do have more trust in them because they have the bulk of my, we'll call it wealth, and they're they're managing my assets. My bank doesn't manage my assets. They just give me a place to park my, my cash and a place to draw my checks from so I can pay some bills. And they process direct deposit, of course. But, you know, so the Raymond James relationship is different. Now, so I have a different kind of trust than them. Their technology is pretty crappy, to be honest with you, right? But I don't engage them on a daily basis like I do with my bank. So my bank relationship, the, the trust is based on dependability and ability to function as a banking entity, as a utility. On, on the Raymond James side, it's, it, it's more about how are they managing my money? Do I trust that they're uh, giving me the right asset mix and, and that kind of thing? So there are a lot of variables. What is trust in, in the type of financial relationship or financial institution I'm with have, has a huge impact on that. I saw a study not too long ago from uh, Refinitiv and they said, and this is post-COVID recently, they said 39% of investors do not feel equipped with the data and content to make investment decisions. So again, it goes back to relevancy and content to drive trust. I would tell you that that number's even higher as it pertains to financial wellness in the retail banking space. You know, people have genuine concerns right now uh, about their ability, you know, to survive financially in this new world that we're kind of entering or we're emerging. So there's there's a lot to be considered there. There is. There is a lot there. And relevancy and content driving trust. Niall, I know that when you're looking at this from an institutional level, that there are other elements that drive trust, right? And you maybe want to share your thoughts on this topic as well. Yeah, I think Brian actually touched on it. Brand is key. So like there is a certain level where 
you know, the brand does come first and who you're dealing with in the digital experience helps and augments that. But like who they are and their track record is is key and I still don't get away from that. I do think um, there's a blurred line where individuals who are getting a digital experience and they're starting to manage their own wealth themselves who would seriously, who previously would maybe not considered using wealth managers are then it's actually digital experience it's access to data access to transparency and it's personalized service and brian you would have touched on that like that is key influencing them but but at the in, institutional level very much as trust uh, is built on reputation but it's also built built on your ability to give you the products to give you the service in a time frame that meets your business needs and that's the key part a lot of them are so hindered and so constrained by regulatory compliance and all those those um pieces you need to get through that actually the ability to trust that they will get you the product you're after that they will manage your products the way that you expect them to in a time frame uh that's a big problem because actually a lot of them let are let down a lot of those institutional customers are let down they don't get the service in the time frame they expect and now some of them are actually opening multiple accounts across multiple providers to see who's going to win the race. They're only going to pick one at the end, but they're open. They're going through the process and see who can win the race of giving me the service of getting me onto that, onto your systems in the time, in the time frame that actually meets my need. Cause the opportunity is gone if you don't do it in the right time frame. So trust for them is actually speed, the ability to fulfill your promises and digital experience is important to that, but digital experience uh, kind of augments that kind of supplements that. In Nile, I think I think you're right on the money because I, I was reading a study from Cornerstone a, a year ago. Four percent of millennial or Gen Z actually considered their primary financial institution to be a digital bank. Fast forward to now, now it's fifteen percent. Millennials a year ago is four percent. Now it's fifteen percent considered yeah. digital to be their first. You know, a challenger bank being their their primary. Gen X a year ago four percent. Now it's eleven percent. And, and boomers were actually seeing a change too. People like me, I'm a younger boomer. You know, it was 1% a year ago considered a digital bank, their primary FI. Now it's 3%. I mean, there's a change occurring and, and you're right on the money. People are, I think people are dabbling in these experiences to a certain extent, even those that are high net worth, as well as those that don't have a lot of money. And ultimately they will pick their their partner per se. And I think it's happening naturally as in, you might even see it as being wealth management. There is another service, whether it's Challenger or not, that is a natural way of managing your money and it's personalized. And it's like, yeah, I'll put a couple of hundred into that. I'll put a couple of it. It's actually, it's just kind of happening organically rather than engage with a wealth manager. It's, it's just naturally that people are kind of expanding that space at a personal level. Yeah, it, that that is interesting. The, the You know, this whole, again, moving upstream and moving from individual into a mass affluent into... Mm high net worth and then institutional. There's just different tick boxes along the way and how you create trust. And it's interesting, Niall, to hear you say that even at the institutional level, you see institutions opening up different accounts with different providers to see who's going to do the best for them. Rory, I know that you're seeing a number of things in the context of small to medium-sized wealth managers in the US and Canada in terms of how they're building trust with customers and how customers are building trust with them. Do you want to maybe touch on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really just depends on trust is contextual. So it really just depends on who you are, you know, whether you're a, you know, millennial or you're you're Gen X or you're a boomer. It really just depends on your level of trust. Okay, I think that the game changed after the financial crisis back in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. I think a lot of you know the younger generation they probably saw their fathers, uncles, mothers lose their jobs in the financial crisis, and they have this sort of natural distrust towards the financial system but they trust technology, right? So I think that like, if you're, you know, a, a young 30 something, you're probably going to be drawn much more towards technology because you do the majority of, you do everything on your phone as opposed to going to a financial advisor, you know, but if you're, you know, 40 something or 50 something, you're probably more inclined to go towards, uh, you know, an individual to, to get that service. So it really depends. And there's an economic factor to it as well, that a lot of these robo-advisors, like in Canada, we've got, you know, WellSimple, you have, you know, Betterment, Wealthfront across the United States. They're offering these services at far cheaper rates. The charges for, you know, asset management are as low as 0.05% for some of these robo-advisors. If you go to an individual, it's 2%. I mean, it's a huge jump up, right? So I, I think that, you know, it just depends on how much you can afford. Obviously, if you're trying to buy a home, 
you're trying to fund your kid's education and somebody asks you for a 2% management fee on your money, you know, that can be a tall order as opposed to going to like something that is more economical. So I think it really just depends on who you are, the context that you're in. But we are seeing like, you know, still a lot of wealth managers, RIAs in, in the United States that are looking to become more efficient, more relevant and more consolidated in, in terms of their offering. So you have this sort of a situation where advisors are trying to integrate all their systems. They have, they're trying to bring together things like, you know, e-money and uh, Schwab and create this 360 degree view so they can offer a more relevant conversation or have more relevant conversations with their customers. So that is, that's somewhere in between where they're trying to get that efficiency internally. So I think it really just, really just depends on who you are. So trust can have different meaning, you know, different meaning to, to, to different customers, depending on who they are. Absolutely. Um, those Absolutely. are some things we're seeing. I hear you. I hear you. And, you know, the the whole idea of engaging with a financial services provider for the first time, what are they asking you to provide to them in terms of who you are, all of the information about you? All of that can be, you know, somewhat friction-filled. Sometimes it can actually help to build trust. But Corey, just kind of directing this at you, when you and I first talked about this, I was giving you an example of a provider here in Ireland who managed to get me completely onboarded on a Sunday into a, a, a brokerage account, which was you know, fully digital. And you made the comment, Corey, of this goes way beyond e-signatures, right? There's so much more to this whole digital engagement with a customer, whether it's again, an individual or institutional at the very first instance of your contact with them. And it's not just about you know, can we, we make all of these forms digitized, which is different than digitalized, but you know, the whole process around identifying customers, can you share some of your ideas on that? Yeah. So first and foremost, this is a relationship business, right? So if, if, if you're not feeling it, whether it's a relationship with an app or, you know, a person or combination thereof, it's, it's not going to happen. And just because they're a millennial doesn't necessarily mean that I just want to have a relationship with my phone and I don't ever expect any type of contact with an advisor ever. That is, that is not true. What they want is seeing their parents. The only way I could get in contact with an advisor was like on the phone or going to see them. And that's not the relationship they want to have, but they still want to know that there's, there's this advisor team of some kind be, you know, behind them where I still have this access, but I still want to spend the majority of my time through an app, through text. And when I really need you, I want to do like one of these, you know, like a, you know, a Zoom or an in-person meeting when, 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 it, when it's necessary, when it's deemed necessary. So, you know, that's, that's what we're seeing in terms of, you know, this omni-channel component where we just need to give more ways to interact with folks instead of just that singular way. I think you're right on the money. I mean, it's that high tech, high touch stuff that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, er everyone's looking for kind of in a post COVID kind of world. I mean, we're now conditioned that it's, it's actually not too bad. You know, I, my, my, my daughter, who's, you know, soon to be 24 has got a relationship with Raymond James based on my recommendation, right. As a, as a father and, you know, but she still as a, you know, a young millennial still wants to have that personal engagement. She's got an IRA uh, conversion uh, call either today, or maybe it was yesterday involving, you know, physical contact, picking up the phone or doing the Zoom. I had, I had a Zoom call last week just to do my annual financial checkup to see if I needed to, you know, change my asset mix. You know, and it's like second nature now. It's like, yeah, pop on a Zoom, you know, we'll, we'll do it. The, the people that are really winning at this game understand that there's a ton of friction out there and there's a ton of, you know, that fundamentally investing, managing your day-to-day -day finances is, is a, a chore and, and fundamentally banking sucks, right? I mean, and the ones that are making it suck less are the ones that are going to make it win, you know, to Pete's point, you know, on a Sunday, being able to be onboarded for a brokerage that you can't do that with, uh, you know, here in the States pretty easily. It's just not going to happen. It's going to be a robo advisor that could probably do it, but it's not going to be a Raymond James or one of the traditional shops. So the ones that are reinventing the experience, they're the ones that are going to really win this. Yeah. Well, that, that one was, you know, that was interactive brokers here and that was paled in comparison to me opening up a, a pension account where my financial advisor, I had to go meet him at the parking lot of a closed pub between our two houses so that I could sign a small forest of documents on the hood of his car or sorry, on the bonnet of his car, as we say here in Ireland. Sounds right? like an episode from the Sopranos. 
absolutely no it was like he pulled up one way and i was looking at the other way and he's like do, do you have a gun i'm like no i don't have a gun something that needs to happen where a lot of these traditional wealth firms are being dragged into this self-service component because their huge fear and you hear it all the time is like well i don't want my clients to be able to withdraw money without me knowing i don't want my clients to be able to see access because all that does is is create more questions and more headache for me but People want to be involved. They want to be engaged in their finances and they expect you to coach them and teach them along the way. And those make better clients because all of a sudden you have just a much tighter bond with this relationship. If you just like let go a little bit and give people like a little bit of autonomy and a lot of access so, so they can you know be in a sense coached up. They want to learn and be engaged with you, which again, makes everyone makes better decisions that way because they're so much, they're, they're, they're they're just much more educated in terms of why we're doing something. And, and there's, there's no second guessing because they know now. So that, that's extremely I think, important. Uh, I think, I think I, I'd agree with that, like based on my experience in the industry, that the best wealth advisors, wealth managers are the ones that are educating their clients the whole mm -hmm. time on every aspect of their, of their, their estate, basically. And they take the time to sit down and, you know, go through everything and, you know, they, they're, they're experts in their field. And I think that allows them to build deeper levels of trust and understanding as to where they want to go. And I think it's still very hard to do that, you know, with technology to coach somebody through the, you know, ins and outs of your retirement using an app, you can have this investing on autopilot idea, but like nobody will tell you about how you should draw down your pension, the tax implications of it, how you should, you know, tie that in with your will. Very, there's only aspects of, the automation can actually take care of that. You know, the rest of it, I think, requires human intervention. Yeah, but I think, that, just I think there are a lot of these app-based wealth management solutions are making inroads in other areas, such mm -hmm. as things like these roundup functions. I don't know if you've seen that with, you know, with Acorn in, in the US, you have it well simple in, in, in Canada as well. You buy something and it invests like, a, it rounds up, you know, 70 cents to a dollar and then invest that into your RSP or, or tax-free savings account or one of the equivalent in the US. I think that's quite clever. We're seeing more of that. That's something that an advisor, an individual can't do. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that where this kind of, wealth space is going to start to creep into all parts of our lives where you'll get like tax back on certain things and they'll donate money to charities and they'll start kind of come up with clever ways to make make their applications more sticky more relevant and those yeah. are the sorts of things that i guess the millennial generation really appreciates so we're going to see yeah they're, they're, they're chipping away at it i mean there's this thing occurring in the retail banking side called the deposit displacement and you know the betterments of the world some of the health savings accounts of the world you know slowly but surely are moving hundreds of billions of dollars you know from the retail banking ecosystem into these you know these these neobanks and these fintechs and mm -hmm. and now you know the betterments of the world who you know not too long ago rolled out a full-fledged checking account now you got square you know square is going to roll out a full-fledged retail banking product as well as a small business product that's going to take real market share and, and the kind of engagement that a millennial wants or, you know, even the younger generation wants are much different than, you know, what the old people like, like me want. <laughs> you know, you don't sell yourself short there, Brian. You're doing yeah, all I'm right. Still, I'm still pretty digital. There's You're no doing doubt about all right. it. But I like that high tech, high touch. I like the idea of being able to talk to someone when I need to. It, I view my financial advisor as OnStar, right? So it, if I'm driving along and my car falls off the road, I know I can get help by pushing OnStar. If I'm right. if I'm going about investing, managing my money, I need help. I've got a button to push, and it's called Raymond James for me. And and I think that the market wants that, and I think there's always going to be a place for it. Absolutely. And I heard Angela Strange from A16Z say on a podcast the other day, "Where's the Google Maps of my money? Right? It's how do one. I how do I just get on, hit go, and boom? By the time I'm 65, I've kind of followed all the way through. Shifting gears a bit, guys. Niall, when you and I first met back in 2015, 2016, I think, in one of the older offices of Finergo, that was round about the time where I left my parting shot at BNP Paribas before I left there and said, listen, guys, if we're thinking <laughs> about building a new customer experience here, and this is for institutional investors, right? You got to be thinking about back in 2014, 2015, the top consumer banking experience that people have, and how do we actually translate? some of the, the, the high points of that over into the institutional side. And again, it's 
you know, the whole front end of an experience, the lipstick on a pig type idea isn't everything. It's got to be digital all the way through. It's got to be digital from end to end. I think the institutional side of finance is a long, long way away from that. But what are some of the things that you're seeing when it comes to that the, the key areas of the customer lifecycle, it's institutional level, perhaps at the, you know, at the wealth level where your institutional customers of Finergo are making progress on the digital side? Yeah, and some of its basics, like the biggest complaint we get from relationship managers and wealth managers in the wealth space is to spend so much of their time doing administrative tasks, like they're not actually doing the job that they want to do. So you're talking about, you know, high touch, low touch, you know, when, when somebody wants high touch relationships, that relationship manager is so working with disjointed systems manual paper but it's just freeing them up to do their job is one of the big things and at the moment the sentiment isn't isn't positive the people who get it right and also the other part like there's a level of people automate the digital experience for the client but guess what you're unless your processes in the middle office and the back office actually work they're connected they work end to end you're actually just exposing a really bad internal process to your customers. You know, you got to get that part right. That's the bit that's, uh, I don't know what Lips is going to pick. That's the bit that people don't see. So when we think of giving that customer experience, that really good customer experience, you got to get your middle office right. Because if you're initially offering something to the client, but actually you've got to go back and ask for manual papers, or you're asking for the same piece of data over and over again, or you are losing, like taking a really long time to respond, that middle office piece is key. So you've got to have that digitization end to end. You've got to really make sure that you're plugged into all your different systems, all your different customer repositories. You want to get that 360 view, but you've got to hoover up that data across so many different parts of the of your biz, of your financial institution to get that 360 view. Like an, another piece of feedback we'd hear from relationship managers is the customer knows more about their relationship with the financial institution institutionally than the relationship manager does. So, you know, because the relationship manager doesn't actually have that 360 view, or if you're talking to one part because you're looking for a product set, and then you talk to another part of the financial institution you're looking for a slightly different product set, they, they, they don't know that you're almost that you're talking to the two different parts. They don't know what products you have. They don't know what would be complementary. The customer knows it, but actually you as a person, a relation manager doesn't know it on, on the other side. So it's really getting that steel thread from the customer to middle office, back office automated straight through as much as possible while human intervention by exception and giving that relation manager, freeing them up to do their job and giving that 360 view. That's that's key. It's traditional system integration. It's traditional end-to-end -end automation, but that is the big thing that people are doing. And you can really superpower the customer experience off the back of it if you get that right. Or if not, you are, you're giving a customer a digital experience, but you're actually just exposing them to all the inefficiencies, the internal inefficiencies. And that, that's, that doesn't lead to a good experience. You're, you're making me think of something here, Niall, that you know, banking as a service providers, right? Like Solaris yeah. out there, their pitch is, listen, take that customer file, put it at the center of the of the whole platform and everything else feeds off that, whether it's lending yeah, products, it's whether it's investment products, savings products. And great, you can go get Solaris, others to do that. But thinking about a big institution that can't just go do that, these systems have been in place since the 70s. Can you do this around the edges, right? You without can. it being lipstick on a pig. Yeah, you know, you can wrap them. I mean, so, so, like they've invested, they've got customer repositories everywhere, you know, little siloed systems that have buckets of data of customer information and duplication of customer information. Like not to call product, that's what we would do. We would say, okay, that's absolutely fine. We will leverage them. There'll be repositories of data, bucks of data, but we will bring that into a centralized area and continue to let them live, but we will keep them in sync We'll give you that 360 view and then we'll automate that process end and orchestrate across those systems. I mean, that's the big thing that kind of really leverages that and brings that together. So yeah, definitely. And separate, like the banking as a service is a separate uh, topic, but that's that's key. I think making those investments and then potentially letting that technology be available for other institutions who haven't got it right. I mean, that's that's a pretty pretty interesting space for for people to get into. Absolutely. And and Corey, you know, the the whole... Customer life cycle is one thing and being able to get that right. But I know, Corey, that you've got a background in AI and chat functions from a prior life. And how are you seeing some of the leading players integrate those tools into the overall customer experience, even at the institutional level or the individual level? Yeah, it's more on the individual level. It's, it's starting at the high volume. You know, when you just think of like an online discount brokerage firm, you know, millions and millions of accounts that are 
self-directed. So it's an easy place to start with chatbots and you know human chat functions because what they're trying to accomplish is get rid of those phone calls that are the phone calls the most expensive service item that, that can happen. And reset my password phone call. What's my balance phone call? You know, like simple things like that. It's a very expensive way to do that. So that's where AI and chatbots are really popping up. And, we, you know, even seeing them in, in retail, you know, how do I find something? And if we can't have the AI function or, or bot answer it, where they're starting to drop to the human, but the human can do two, three, four chats at a time, which is far more efficient than obviously you can only do one phone call at a time. So it's a way to drive efficiency with volume. The next level is, is all about advisors interfacing into their back office. It's chatting in with the back office, which is a little bit more just yeah. efficient, more modern than you know traditional emails. Again, phone calls are the most expensive thing you can do. It's you know the biggest time waster. Plus you're hanging on maybe a queue when you could be doing something else when you can chat in to get an answer and chat back out. And then that final frontier is is that chat with advisor and client components, which there's a little bit more regulatory hurdles when we get into that. So that's not as simple as advisor to back office, but the, that that's that next evolution in terms of how can I communicate and, and co-collaborate on a financial plan via, via Slack or something like that? That is that is something that we're thinking about and something that's around the corner in reality. It's not that far away. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I've seen that with Symphony that that's, you know, over the last few years that where it's kind of, Symphony is kind of like Slack, but, you know, say from an investment banking perspective where you got a relationship manager, you got a product manager, you got a legal person and a message that comes in from the relationship manager then AI reads that and drops that into kind of a, tr a term sheet that the product uh, person would see and the legal person would see as well, right? Mm -hmm. And that type of AI-led, you know, collaboration across an organization is just, is really fascinating to me. Yes, absolutely. You, you know, Pete, there's this, this thing occurring in the U.S. in retail banking that's referred to as conversational banking. And in its AI-based interaction through ultimately moving from a bot to kind of a virtual assistant model, where you'll have contextual engagement with, uh, you know, an AI-based virtual assistant that understands a little about you based on data sets, right? And it kind of goes back to what Niall was saying, starting with kind of data at the center, understanding the customer at the center. And then it provides you, you know, insight and information that you can act upon. If it's not able to assist you, it puts you in a queue for that human engagement at that point, you know, and that... That that conversational or engagement banking kind of layer is something that's really needed in the in the banking industry. It's something that the cores here in the U.S. are talking about, whether it's a, you know a fintech uh, or a Fiserv or a Jack Henry, as well as you know BAS. That that they're finally getting it that you know data can drive conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. And Rory, how are you seeing that change with the changes in society over the last year with it with it you know with the C word, right? In this how the customers of the firms that you're serving and that you're working with are perhaps taking hold of some of this automation or demanding some of this automation when it comes to, you know, how, how they engage. What are you seeing? Yeah, well, I think there's, it's, it's a blend of, of both automation and self-service and still getting help from traditional advisors. I mean, that would be the sort of the key trend that we would see. I wouldn't say you know, based on the customers that we work with, and we work with customers across North America, the customers are not banging down the door looking for automation. They're looking for, you know, human touch. A lot of people are going through very difficult times right now. Not everyone works in technology. You know, a lot of people are working in traditional industries. They're trying to get a hold on their, their, their pensions and their mortgages. And, you know, apps can't solve that problem. You know, they need human beings, they need experts, they need educators, you know, probably at the end of a Zoom link or something like that to be able to walk them through the process in terms of what they want to do. I'd say what we are seeing is some, something in between where we're seeing a lot of process automation to allow things like client onboarding to be a little, a little bit smoother, collect, collation of documents to be a little bit easier. Things like digital signatures have really spiked. You know, everyone's using DocuSign now in some capacity to sign their documents. I would say those are the, the key trends that we're seeing. And then obviously having that deeper understanding of, of the, the profile of the customer, who they are, trying to pull together information from all sources into a single view of the, of the customer. I mean, those are the things that are enabling advisors to deliver a more personal experience. You know, still in the United States, the vast majority of wealth still sits with the, you know, the boomer generation, you know, and those are the, the main customers right now. So 
And those are the people that are working with traditional advisors and RIAs, wealth managers. And it's the new generation coming through, you know, the, the millennials are, are, are interacting with things like Betterment and, and, and Wealthsimple, et cetera, to, to manage their finances. So, yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. What I'd like to do next is just ask each, each one of you to kind of share what you see some of the leading players doing, whether this be an institutional provider of financial services or, you know, a provider of financial services to individuals, right? Whether they're old school, new school, whatever, in just, you know, a pure fintech player even. Corey, starting with you, I, I know that you, you did have a case study around an institutional player that you thought was doing, had some leading ideas and leading execution here in the digital space. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a great story. So it's RBC Wealth in the US. They had an issue with keeping advisors and recruiting new ones. And they found out that really the technology platform was the main issue with that advisor experience was the reason why people were leaving and they couldn't recruit advisors, which you know clearly would affect your growth goals, right? If you, if you don't have advisors and you're losing them, we have a kind of a growth AUM issue. So they engaged us and we helped turn that around. So they had about 26 different systems an advisor had to interact with to prepare for a client meeting. Greg Beltzer, who's in charge of technology, you know, mentioned that an advisor actually sent him a picture of a stack of papers with just an unbelievable amount of you know sticky notes sign here sign here sign here so we can all imagine this unbelievable art just terrible client experience how long something could take it can take weeks to get an account open or to get something done which you know we've all kind of heard you know stories about that so we were able to you know with mulesoft's help which is a kind of an integration type system you know putting apis and connecting all of this together to we talked about this full view of a customer and how can we do that we were able to help turn that around in terms of they had their best recruiting year ever with this single pane Salesforce-led advisor desktop where the CRM becomes the center of the universe. And I know 15 years ago, I told you I was building custody platforms. That was not the case. It was that broker-dealer platform, like where I placed trades. And that was like the center of the world. And that's that's evolved. And I think everyone's aware of that now because, you know, T3 study said that 56% of advisors said that CRM is the most important piece of technology. The next important piece is 26, which was financial planning. So there's, it's, it's by far and away, people understand that CRM is the center because this is a relationship business. And we were able to build this unbelievable advisor desktop, you know, led by uh, the financial services cloud and focusing on onboarding. And now they can open an account in 24 minutes, you know, which is, which is an unbelievable turnaround to, you know, to get that ready to go. So you can think about all of the pieces that can fall out of that. I get assets in the door faster. I have less drop-off, less clients that don't follow through just because of how long that would take. And the final piece is that their close rate went up by like 46%, almost 50%, just because of creating a better process. We didn't create, there's, there's not a new investment vehicle. You know, advisors didn't all of a sudden become better at closing. It's just the fact that now they can spend more time with their clients, it's less cumbersome. So you just remove some of these hurdles and you can just automatically run faster. It's kind of that, that simple. And that's a great case study we have about getting your systems together, getting out of the siloed mentality. We need to still have these systems in place. But we need to connect them and have them work in concert together so we understand everything about this client relationship and the advisor can spend more time with their clients, which at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to accomplish. Gotcha. And I'm not surprised to hear that it's RBC. I mean, they were one of the center stories of that book, Flash Boys, about systematic trading, right? Mm -hmm. And if they're going to be seeking how many, you know, how much money into that, into what they built there, I'm not surprised that they're that they're making this commitment. Brian, shifting over to you, what do you know? What do you see as one of your favorites out there, the leading players, and and what they're doing? Yeah. Uh, to push the envelope when it comes to digital financial services. I'll take uh, I'll take the new guys on the block. You know, I like what Betterment and Wealthfront are doing, and, and I'll tell you why. I mean, I, I think they look at the kind of the lifespan of their product, and they base it on you know customer acquisition, the onboarding process, developing a management of you know my portfolio and his portfolio, the transactional execution, the reporting. I think that's a big one. The value-added services that they bring to the market, which are increasingly becoming differentiators. And then ultimately, and it's a little less important to me as an end user, but as a fintech guy, important. That would be probably regulatory compliance. You know, on the customer acquisition side, I see Betterment and, and Wealthfront, you know, really looking at AI analytics and increasing acquisition effectiveness. 
you know, on the onboarding side, you know, they're really using intelligent automation to streamline the process as best they possibly can, which again, removes that friction from a customer point of view. On the management side of the portfolio, especially in the case of Betterment, I see, you know, AI and, and the associated analytics kind of driving more enhanced offerings. And then, you know, when I, I look at, you know, the trades, it's kind of, again, intelligent automation, because of the way I have my account set up there, they reduce the transactional costs ultimately, which drives efficiency. And that gets passed on to you know, people like you and me. And then on the value added services, you know, I think there's a lot of things that they're going to be doing. They're going to be offering you know, retail banking and some additionally non-traditional bank offers as well. So you know, those are the two that kind of come to mind for me. Raymond James, I think, does a good job of that high-tech, high-touch. You know, they're, they're independent advisors, leverage technology as the best they can to remove the friction and to support kind of the backend operationalized aspect of their business, which allows them to focus on more quality time with their, their customers. I've experienced that. I think that's, that's, that's important as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I've, I've looked at both Betterment and Wealthfront. One of my leading indicators of who is pushing the envelope out a bit is those that now offer crypto and I'm not, you know, and, and it's not always the yep. exact right sign, you know, or, or it's not always completely aligned with their digital strategy, but if they're able to do that, and I think even one of the two are doing that, I forget which one, but also SoFi now are enabling that, which is yeah. pretty interesting. So the, those are, those are great examples. What do you think, Niall? What, what's your view? Pick out a, a leading player. Before you do that, I, we do have a question in the chat from Adam Wesley that I will come back to in a minute. Adam, just to let you know, I do see it. We'll, we'll respond to, on that. But Niall, what do you think? Yeah, just kind of like a complimentary points. People offering omni-channel is great, but you can start one channel, pick it up on another channel, go to another channel. Actually, just that kind of that streamlined view when you're you're interacting, it's not. I started one channel and it you abandoned in that channel because you want to go to a different one. I mean that that that's interesting. The AI piece blending, giving hyper personalized service through AI because at the moment a lot of the digital experience and digital services actually aren't personalized. You're looking for a product and actually it does take a human being to personalize it to you, human being to come on board. And that's why people, you know, Brian, you're talking about your daughter asking for a, you know, a person to come in. It's, it's probably because you do need that person to personalize it. People who are using technology and AI to give you that personalized service is really interesting. There's a lot of clients we're working with who are, who are doing that. And, and the ones who are doing it really right, what I find interesting is they're treating it as a product in a technology sense and they are banking as a service you would have said peach but actually they're saying okay we need to do this it's we're going to offer to our end customers but actually we're going to sell this as a product capability we want to be a platform company more than just financial institution and we're going to sell this to challenger banks neo banks other people in the industry i mean that that's super ambitious from a bank from financial institution perspective but it's the right mindset i mean that's the way you, you need to do it and that's it's really interesting if they get it right I mean, it's like it's like an airline company saying they're a tech company. You know, it's the same thing. It's ba- it's those guys really trying to be a tech company and a product players. Oh yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And you know, on that point of of what can the banks do, right? I heard Ann Bowden speaking the other day on a podcast. She's mm. CEO of Starling Bank, and she was alluding to the fact that they've built all this great technology. They've managed to bring on you know close to a million customers. I think it's you know sixty forty split between individuals and SMEs. And now that they have all that and it's working, might there be a way to start white labeling that to others? They've proven that they can do this and they can do this at scale and they could do it profitably, I think is what their numbers will show this year. But I think that that is super interesting to me to see that perhaps coming out of this whole massive shift. One of the players that is available in the UK that isn't available in in the Republic of Ireland is Wealthsimple. And I think they're Canadian of origin, Ori, aren't they? I know that you're a fan of them, but you know, w- would they be one that you would kind of point to or are there others as well? Yeah, I mean, I think Wellsimple are doing a great job. I mean, they're certainly very innovative and they offer like a range of different accounts, you know, whether it's individual investment accounts, savings accounts. Also, they also do crypto as well. And they have a, their, their investors, founders have a heritage in financial services as well. So they know the industry really well. So I think they're doing a really good job and I think they're really appealing to the millennial generation. Certainly that's what the, the numbers are showing. And so those guys are, 
you know, certainly are, are impressive. There's other lesser known wealth managers in, in, in Canada called, like one of them would be Mocha, a similar thing where they're, you know, doing a lot of this sort of alternative wealth management where they're, you know, uh, rounding up amounts that you're, you're spending and, you know, giving you sort of cash back in different deals. I think they're doing a good job as well. But really, it's it still, for me anyway, uh, remains a, a, a challenge for these sort of robo-advisors to offer real meaningful advice to, to people who have complex financial situations. So whether it's pensions, refinancing your mortgage, there's only a certain amount of things these robo-advisors can do right now without human intervention. So right. I think the future is going to be interesting. Yep. And I, I, you know, one of my favorites, and I will be a bit of a homer because I, I am an advisor to them, but just it's such an amazing team at Fund Admin Chain or FAC. They're London-based. They're building a digital funds network, or they have built a digital funds network with some pretty big asset manager names that will be going live with regulated digital funds. And the whole approach with that was to get to the core, right? What is the very, very core of an investment fund? Well, it's who owns that investment fund. It's the register. It's the transfer agency activity. And once you get that right, well, the investors' records, the distributors' records, the asset managers, the pension fund, everybody just becomes digital and they're taking the right approach there. But just shifting over to that question from Adam Wesley, which is an excellent question. If financial wellness is the goal, right? Think about that for a minute, financial wellness. Can we all just become better savers, right? Can we all become closer to our money where we are sucking away that money each month beyond our 401ks or our pensions and investing it wisely? And even like I, one of my favorite things to do lately is bringing some true trading discipline into the crypto space. Anyway, if financial wellness is a true goal, right? It will require a full picture of an individual, like we've been saying, from deposit to lending and investment. What are your predictions around how that will come to market? Will it be open banking that might drive that? Wealth firms moving down market more into individual uh, investing? Banks moving up market? Super apps like you know what I know Walmart are trying to do, what Revolut are trying to become? Anyone want to jump in there with some, some thoughts around you know, how we get this full picture digitally across these different products? This has been a challenge for decades in banking. I mean, when I got in banking in the 80s, you know, financial institutions said, quote unquote, we want to be your financial partner for life. And, you know, they were asking, in essence, back then through this thing called relationship banking, that they get your, you know, all your relationship, be it the investment side, the lending side, or the retail side. You know, I think the biggest hurdle is going to be regulatory. I think the other hurdle is that legacy financial institutions and legacy core providers don't have the technological wherewithal to make it happen. I even look at City. You know, City doesn't have the ability to make it all happen because their technology is remarkably siloed. The data is not being shared. So the holistic view of the of the customer, be it retail, institutional, or wholesale, isn't really happening. Is it? Is it a utopian? Um, a vision, conceivably. I think it's something we should be striving towards. But then there's the whole regulatory issue as well, right? That separation between the insured versus the non-insured part of, you know, kind of uh, financial management. I got gotcha. you. That know, makes sense. If customers are willing to give up their data if they get something in return. That's, you know, proven through surveys. So if it's going to be driven a lot by the customer, is the, from a wealth standpoint, is the customer going to give access to socials? To their advisor or to the wealth firm is the customer going to give access to all of their other you know debts credit cards maybe banking assets to to bring these things together for a better picture and that that's something we talk a, a lot about with kind of that 360 view because then ai next best action can really go crazy in terms of when should i be calling someone and why should i be calling someone about changes in financial planning we notice through socials that you know you've expanded your family or you're now a family of four now we need to talk about 529s not 24 years later yeah. right so we're getting this information to be like there's a life event happened something major happened and i can throw ai on top of that to alert me what is my best thing i need to be doing today so the advisor spending the the most appropriate amount of time in the right places which means they can also handle more which drives down costs, right? So we, we can scale. So I think it's going to be led by the individual customer giving access or, or, or allowing access. Takes us back to the subject of trust. It does. Yeah. The open banking piece is key, but the funny part of that is there's so many intermediary layers 
think true layer yappily because yeah it's actually it's not working as in the banks are letting their data open for via open apis and actually people are putting layers on top of it because it's it's not plug and play you think it would be but it's absolutely not uh plug and play the way it should be so it's not really being executed the way it was intended very good well thank you adam for the question appreciate that but just kind of as a closing guys do you want to kind of give a quick 30 second view on if there's one thing that you wanted to see going digital in the financial services space this year, or perhaps into next year, what would it be? Anything. Rory, how about we start with you? Oh God, that's, that, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I think certainly in terms of, you know, something around, you know, pensions would be, would be great being able to just figure out what you should be investing in, what portfolio you should be investing in. And trying to visualize, you know, what your future is going to look like. I think one of the big challenges that human beings have is seeing where they're going to be in the next 20 or 30 years and what sort of lifestyle they're going to have and what their context is going to be. And uh, so I'd like to see something that enables, you know, human beings to kind of step into that future more and enable them to sort of predict what that future is going to be, because I think it's sort of an intangible thing for a lot of human beings. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges financial, you know, wealth managers have is kind of helping customers to step into their future selves. So that would be an interesting one. Awesome. Niall, what do you think? For me, it's when it comes to money, one size doesn't fit all. So hyper-personalized using your full financial situation, like we were talking. I mean, if we could crack that, that would be huge. That, that to me is, will be, will be just getting to that panacea would be amazing. I hear you. I want one of those floating ATMs on a drone that when I need cash for something to pay somebody who will only it's take cash, that it'll just drop in front of me. Or they, they, I, I'd love to see that happen. Brian, what do you think? I would say you need to become a data-centric organization. Look at the data that's out there today. You know, the data has been available through card transactions, bill payments, et cetera, for years. There are organizations out there that'll help you harness that data. Companies like Blip out of Philadelphia looks at bill pay data, turns it into actionable insights. That's the kind of behavior we need. And you can't move toward a, a 360 kind of viewpoint without aggregating that data. So true. So true. Corey? Yeah, I'll build on that. Maybe it'd be boring, but blocking and tackling, right? It's We got to combine these systems together so they can actually function and work so we can analyze this data and, and run with it. It's far too siloed and too cumbersome today. So we need to be able to have all these things work together in concert. So boring answer, but it's blocking and tackling and very foundational. I hear you. No, you're so right. And I, I'd love to be able to say we just, everyone just start over, but you can't because yep. there, there's, you know, eight billion people on this planet that all need financial services and you can't just turn something off. We've got to keep building. We've got to keep improving. But listen, we're going to close it there, folks. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you to Rory. Thank you to Brian. Thank you, Niall Toomey. And thank you, Corey, for joining us today. This has been fascinating discussion, very insightful. And if anybody has any questions, feel free to just get in touch. You can get in touch with me, Pete at NoriaVentures.com, and I will direct the questions and funnel them through. Everybody is on LinkedIn. Most folks are on Twitter. So you can get in touch with folks that way if you want to have further conversations with all of them, which I hope you do. So thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. That does it for this week, folks. Links to get in touch with Rory from Navirum, Brian from Movin, Corey from Salesforce, and Niall from Finergo are in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. So check us out online and subscribe to our Money Never Sleeps newsletter as well. A special thanks goes out to Peter Gorl at Art Envy for teeing up the recording for release on Money Never Sleeps. If you like what you heard, we would sincerely appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening on, as it helps others to find the show. And remember, Money Never Sleeps is spelled as all one word. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for his work on this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm the founding partner at Norio Ventures, and I'm an early-stage startup advisor and investor helping fintech and digital asset startups get their product to market, build traction with customers, and raise funding. If you'd like to talk to me about your business, get in touch at pete at norioventures.com. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money never sleeps, pal.